You're listening to the Wheeler Center podcast. Consciousness, I think, is both easy and very hard to define. It's easy because everyone knows what it is. We all are familiar with consciousness, our own consciousness. When we try to explain it to other people, it's really hard. It's a bit like, you know, Louis Armstrong said about jazz. You know, if someone asks him, what is jazz? He said, well, if you have to ask, you will never really know. Hello, I'm Hilary Harper. I present Life Matters on ABC Radio National, but how would I really know? Either way, welcome from possibly me to possibly you at the virtual Wheeler Centre. I'd like to acknowledge that we are actually meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. And I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands that you're watching this event from too, and the First Nations people who are with us today. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And this event is a partnership between the Wheeler Centre and Melbourne Monash Consciousness Research. And the study of consciousness is really a collaborative effort too. Different branches of science have had to come together and put their heads together to nut out some, some definitions and some working concepts. Our guest today, uh, Professor Jakob Holwey. He's the, the Director of the Monash Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies and Professor Olivia Carter, and she heads the Perception and Pharmacology Lab at the University of Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It is so lovely to actually be back here today and, and doing this in person because it's such a, a great way to talk about it, isn't it? It's three brains, three minds on stage trying to nut this out. Let's start with what you both mean when you talk about consciousness. Uh, Jakob, what does philosophy have to say about how we are aware in the world? Consciousness, I think, is both easy and very hard to define. It's easy because everyone knows what it is. We all are familiar with consciousness, our own consciousness. It's the kind of thing that we experience when we wake up in the morning after sleep, uh, dreamless sleep, all the experiences and thoughts that flow through our mind uh, when that happens smells, emotions, uh, we know exactly what it is. Uh, at the same time, it's also incredibly hard to define uh, because we only know it from our own case. And when we try to explain it to other people, um, especially people who might not uh, have thought a lot about it, it's really hard because we fall back on just explaining behaviours and functions and so on, and we don't really capture the... Um, the essence of consciousness. It's a bit well, like, you know, Louis Armstrong said about jazz. You know, if someone asks him, what is jazz? He said, well, if you have to ask, you will never really know. Well, like you said, when you wake up, you know what it, what it is and what it isn't. You've seen a change of state. But yes, a lot of thinkers have tried to define it, haven't they? Yeah, indeed. And, uh, and often we run into definitional problems. So uh, a lot of neurologists, for instance, will explain it in terms of awareness. Say, well, consciousness is awareness. And then the philosophers will say, and so what's awareness? And, you know, people will say, well, it's consciousness. And then we have a nice little <laughs> definitional circle that doesn't really get us anywhere far. So, I mean, we, we're familiar with the, the kind of aphorisms, I think, therefore I am. Is that a stab at defining consciousness? You know, it, it resides in the ability to kind of be aware of oneself? I think that's the natural place to go for consciousness that we think about not just consciousness, but self-consciousness or introspection. And that's natural and a good thing to do. If you want to find out what consciousness is, look into yourself. Uh, but even doing that is difficult um, because we re then report it and we have an inner monologue uh, where we try to say, oh, yeah, right now my consciousness is this, this and this. But even that translation into words can be quite difficult and doesn't really, really capture what the quality of subjective experiences, what it is that makes it a first-person perspective on, on life. And has it been inflected, like other things in philosophy, by the perspective of the people writing who might have been, I don't know, relatively privileged or male or, you know, people who had the time to sit and think and write? I think so. And right now there's a, a, a good and healthy movement to broaden out the philosophy of consciousness from the very male Western perspective... Uh, we all know the big figures in the history of philosophy and they're invariably male. Um, and there's much more awareness now, pun intended, of Indian philosophy, uh, all sorts of faith traditions, the big Western traditions and what they've had to say about consciousness. And, and it's, a, 
it's long overdue, I think. Yeah, so when you talk about the idea that consciousness is just the perception of consciousness, it feels like we're in that film Inception. We're just in this kind of series of folding boxes. Where where are we? Can science help us out here, a different branch of science? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I agree that this question, this definition is a really big part of, of consciousness science and, and research. And I agree we have this inherent view that we all, we all know what it is and so we don't want to get stuck on this failure to really clearly define because it's not that we don't know what we're talking about. We all know what we're talking about. Um, but on the other hand, if we really want to try and understand it and we want to find the neural markers of this or that, we need to be much clearer than saying, well, we all know what we're talking about. And one, one sort of analogy that I've started using when I talk to people, I think it's helpful, I'm not sure if other people do, but to think about a term say something like running ability, okay? So I, I would imagine if you had 100 experts in together in a room and you said, pick who is the, the best runner that has ever lived, I suspect you'd get a large diversity of opinions. And that's not because the elements that people are basing those judgments on are poorly defined or that they're not measurable. We have speed, we have endurance, we have biomechanics, we have all these different things. We have the number of world championships you've ever won. All of these different metrics and depending on who you ask or what the person's expertise are, they emphasise different things. And so I quite like that analogy because, again, we all know what we're talking about and we're all approximately on the same page, but we emphasise different things. And there are a lot of aspects. There's the the nature of the subjective experience, you know, the the... the feeling that it's like but other people are spending their entire academic lives trying to understand the computational principles that underlie the conscious networks and other people are looking at which neuron is involved and they're really getting at very fundamentally different aspects but it's the same thing you know it's it's tackling this large umbrella term of consciousness um, but coming up with extremely different sorts of answers. Well, one question is why does science need to know or want to know? You know, what's driving the push? Because that would, I guess, drive people in different directions, wouldn't it? Yeah, so th there's often in science the individuals doing the work have just an inherent curiosity. They want to understand how does the brain do it or what are the principles involved. But there are some really important real-world consequences to this work. I mean, the, the most obvious one is end-of-life types of decision-making or start-of-life decision-making around um, right to life or right to, you know, at what point should you turn off a life support system of a loved one? And I think that's that's the area that's really propelled um, the science forward in, over the last decade. There's a, a lot of funding finally going into consciousness research, looking really at clinical markers around things like anaesthesia. Again, it's an important thing to know that the person being operated on is conscious or unconscious. Um, or we have this situation, a known situation, that you can have different patients in a clinical context. And if a clinician says, can you hear me? Squeeze my hand if you can hear me. Then there's all sorts of reasons why the person may not be responding. One might be that they're completely unconscious and completely unaware of their surroundings. And others... In other cases, they may have a degree of paralysis or difficulty hearing or something like that. So the need to have an index of consciousness that is separated from the person's capacity to respond is extremely important. And we're all going to get to a point where we're getting towards the end of life and... and that's an area that a lot of work is being done at the moment. Yeah, and maybe even points along the way too where we are, are unable to express our consciousness but it might still be ticking away in there. Exactly. Jakob, in philosophy, is consciousness associated exclusively with the body? Because that's a really interesting way to think about it, that you've got these bodies within which consciousness resides. Is that how philosophy sees it? So that's the question about the metaphysics of consciousness and that is the key to um, kind of opening up for the problem of consciousness um, because it's very hard to see how consciousness could all and only be a matter of the body and in particular the brain. And so philosophers have been thinking a lot about ways in which we can make the connection between matter and mind. So that's the mind-body problem. It's very tempting to say that 
consciousness is all and only a matter or of of physical interactions in the brain, uh, neurons firing, the kind of stuff that Olivia is talking about. Um, my, for my, speaking for myself, I, I kind of agree with that. It's very hard to see how we could have the world as it is, plus the physical world as it is, plus some kind of mental substance as you know, harboring the soul or the mind. Um, because so far, the history of science has been pretty much pointing to everything having a physical basis. Um, it's hard to see how there could be causal interactions between your subjective experience of pain and you pulling your hand back from some fire that you stuck your hand in. Um, how can we have causal interactions between something that is physical and something that is not physical? That's not, not something that the laws of physics really allows. But on the other hand, if we just pull a, a, a brain apart and just look at the firings of neurons and the networks and the information and the computational structures, all the kinds of stuff that scientists do and that we do in my lab as well and that Olivia is involved in, it is hard to see where consciousness is. You can see where the causal substrates, the physical neuronal substrates for behavior is, maybe for memory, uh, maybe for other kinds of cognitive processes, but consciousness itself it's hard to, to spot in all those causal interactions. And so that puts pressure on us it, away from physicalism and materialism. Um, so this is why philosophy is still involved. Neither of these positions are particularly attractive or comfortable. Well, and I like the uncomfortable questions. I'm glad we can canvas some of them today. But Olivia, what's your thought? It, can we see a part of the brain which we can say that's where consciousness comes from? We, we definitely can't at the moment. Um, and... Yeah, I, I also find this really interesting tension. I mean, I, I'm a scientist. I absolutely believe that everything that I experience my, can be fully explained by the brain and obviously the input that comes through the sense organs and all the rest of it. But then when I stop and think about that, you know, I, I understand how the neurons fit together. I mean, we don't understand the full complexity of, of how the brain is working. But as soon as you can start pulling those things apart, it becomes very unclear. You know, we should be able to replicate all of these different elements. And I, I then think about that and think, well, if you could pull them all apart and replicate them in a different system, I wouldn't necessarily say that new system was was conscious. Um, and just but to answer your, your first question of can you see the element or, or some um, signature of consciousness and where... Where the science is at at the moment is things have been ruled out and ruled in. You know, clearly the brain is important and more important than the toe. Step one. You yeah. know, these sorts of things. Um, there are sections of the brain, like the internal um, hub within the brain called the thalamus, is clearly very important. It, it, if that part is killed off or damaged um, very, very badly in a stroke, you're unconscious. You know, these, where there's other parts of the brain that if they're very badly damaged, you'd still be conscious but impacted in some way. So we're starting to pull apart these sorts of things. There are certain sorts of neurons that seem to be more important than others. But there is no single candidate that is really uh, sticks out as being absolutely necessary. And there's also nothing that, that jumps out as something that couldn't be replicated in in a different system. So that's the other thing that I find quite interesting. People talk about com complexity and different sort of informational states. Well, all of those can be replicated in other sorts of systems. So it's it's a very, um, I don't know, just if the, the closer you look, the, the more opaque it becomes. It's a very uh, tricky thing, but extremely interesting. Yes. Well, I was reading about this philosopher called Daniel Dennett saying it's impossible for anyone to say if other people aren't zombies and they just appear to be conscious. Uh, can we now tell the zombies from the humans as the science progressed? You know, is there a way to tell, like you said, you can replicate things in other systems. Is there mm. a way to potentially tell real consciousness from artificial consciousness? Mm. So, I mean, the answer is no. Uh, yeah, the, the, the simple answer is we absolutely cannot do that. I think we need to start asking an even more nuanced question because maybe there'll not so much that there'll be a time where we can better detect who's conscious or not, but we need to start thinking about 
which aspects of consciousness do we care more or less about? You know, are there certain capacities like memory or emotional elements that we consider more or less important than others? There may... You, I think of a simple example like a robot vacuum cleaner. You know, we have one in our house, it zips around, it knows when it's full, it goes back and recharges itself. It has what you what engineers would term awareness because it has awareness of the objects around it and it can navigate, it functions, it will beep and do all sorts of things. So it's showing sensory processing, it's showing some sort of memory, it's showing some internal awareness of its, well, recognition of its own energy levels and these sorts of things. So we need to really start thinking about, well, there are elements of a robot vacuum cleaner that it shares with us and maybe we, we're not so interested, we don't want to be so interested in working out, okay, is, does this system have a capacity to have a fleeting moment of recognition of self? Well, maybe that's okay. You know, do we care about that? And, and what are the sorts of things we want to have um, be, be looking into in artificial systems or other animal systems that we want to start caring about in terms of ethics and regulation? Well, I mean, yeah, if you discovered that a robot was aware or mm. the terminology is really interesting it's recognition versus awareness yeah. versus consciousness uh would you then start to wonder whether it could potentially feel emotions and would that be relevant i mean Jakob, does philosophy have things to say about whether there are implications for if we discover these things about machines certainly i have a lot of sympathy for olivia's perspective on on the vacuum cleaner there but the one philosophical starting point would be is is there something it is like to be the vacuum cleaner or the robot or the plant or the octopus? Is there something it's like? Does it have a subjective experience? And we might be able to build up a lot of capacity for short-term memory, working memory, episodic memory, maybe things that look like emotions. You know, for instance, the, the vacuum cleaner can say, ouch, when it hits the wall. But we wouldn't necessarily infer in a very solid way that there's something it is like to be that thing. And that's the key question for a lot of philosophers, is there something it is like? And that's that's the kind of core of this problem, I think. But if you ask, is there something that it's like to be a human, you could be there for years hearing each individual's response to that question. Is it about how that can be expressed. I think you've done some work on whether it's actually possible for humans to really understand whether they can understand non-human yeah. animals. That's a, I think uh, there's a number of questions there. So one is about creatures other than humans and how chauvinistic are we about you know, assigning or attributing conscious states to other things and uh, treatment of animals um, is certainly a key question there. I also like the other aspect of your question, which is about individual differences between humans. And I am certainly becoming very much more interested in that than necessarily solving the very fundamental metaphysical question. I think that that's probably beyond us for conceptual reasons. But figuring out the role of consciousness and the different role of consciousness in our everyday phenomenology for our well-being is incredibly important. And we know that from mental illness, for instance. So almost every mental illness, psychiatric illness, um, involves a, an alteration in consciousness, some more than others. So schizophrenia and, and depression and so on have, have deep um, roots in consciousness. And so a better understanding of consciousness from that um, scientific perspective is necessary to help alleviate mental illness, but also just to understand the role of consciousness in everyday life, whether we suffer from mental illness or not. I want to quickly come back to the idea of non-human animals for a moment because some of the people uh, who've engaged with this topic online have sent in questions and, and there have been a few about, you know, what implications does this have for our diets and how we treat them in laboratories and how we use them in the world. Um, but I think, Jakob, you've argued that um, the conscious sensations of some animals might just be completely alien to us, for example, octopuses and squids. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, that, you know, how knowable is it, this other being. So this also relates to the the big philosophical problem of the of, of 
other minds. To what extent do we know other minds, other people's minds and other animals' uh, minds? And as Olivia said as before, we just don't know, like we don't have conclusive knowledge that other creatures than ourselves, whether they're humans or animals, are actually conscious. Like, con and, but conclusive knowledge is hard to come by about anything. And we can certainly infer reasonably that other people and lots of other animals have conscious sensations and conscious perceptions. Uh, there's, you know, you'd have to be pretty odd to deny pain to a lot of different kinds of animals. But then there's a question about where, where do we draw the line? Where in the kind of animal kingdom do we draw the line between those creatures that are capable of, let's just say pain, feeling pain and not feeling pain? Um, e. coli, probably not, but some you will find people who think that uh, bacteria have consciousness. Um, bees can do amazing things. There's some great teams in Australia that are looking at cognitive and perceptual capacities in bees that look very much like the kinds of cap capacities that we associate with being conscious. Um, but octopuses, for instance, um, there's some great work as well uh, by Peter Gottfried Smith and others about what does sentience, if not full consciousness, look like in other creatures. Uh, and there are real questions about um, the degree to which there's sentience, but also what that sentience might be like. Well, yes, when we talk about sentience as opposed to consciousness, are we talking about the ability to like physically feel sensations and, I don't know, have reactions to them? How, how is it defined? I don't think that there is a good definition of any of these things. I think that when we make the distinction between sentience and consciousness, we are automatically slipping into thinking of consciousness as something very rich that is endowed with also introspection and self-consciousness. And we're, we're happy enough to withdraw that from other creatures. But then that, that thing that is left was the thing we started out talking about, namely consciousness as such, or subjectivity, or, um, which is something more than just the physical sensation of things, because Olivia's vacuum cleaner can do that. So um, it's easy to put down on paper and use these words, sentience, consciousness, awareness, um, subjectivity, but actually pinning them down is much harder, I think. Yeah, I read somewhere the other day that dogs can tell jokes, like dogs play tricks. And I was like, well, that's going to keep a lot of postgrads very, very busy for some time <laughs> to come. Um, Olivia, you, I understand, have done some work looking at the, the imaging and uh, looking at how our neural activity changes when our state of consciousness changes. Can you talk a bit about that and, and how, what you do to people to see these changes? Yeah, I'm, so imaging is not my core background, but I've worked with a lot of different people looking at different using different imaging modalities so a very um, common one is is the EEG which is looking at the electrical activity of the brain and one reason I think that's a really useful way to approach consciousness science is because first of all it, it gives a signal in terms of what's happening at the electrical level in a very fast time scale so a lot of people are familiar with these with F fMRI, which is a magnetic um, signal, but that shows oxygen consumption. So it's a very slow kind of uh, a signal that you get, and most of the things that are happening that are relevant to consciousness are quite fast. The other reason I quite like the electrical, sort of focusing on the electrical signaling, well, first of all, that's how the neurons work, but it's also how the neurons work in flies and and dogs and every other sort of animal and, and computers and these things. So it allows you to um, address questions in a way that's not limited to humans. But one of the, I guess, one of the things that's really um, coming becoming apparent in that broad body of work is that these issues of complexity of the neural signal. And so it's still, I'd say that whole area is in its infancy, but, but things are progressing. And there, there does seem to be these changes in the overall, um, I guess, the, the functional network of the brain. So it's an, it's an interesting thing that obviously when you're asleep, you've got the same brain and these different brain states, anesthesia, epilepsy, a... a in, some people think that when you, basically consciousness, you, you're 
less conscious if your brain is less active, maybe we could think about it. But that's clearly not the case because in something like a, an absence seizure, an epileptic seizure, there's a huge amount of activity going on in the brain, but it seems to be that it's more, you know, it's more synchronised. So there's, it's a less complex system, um, signal effectively. But it, one thing that I find quite interesting with the, the current relatively, um, you know, it's early, sta early days, I guess, so, so the theories will, um, you know, I suspect things will become more complicated over the next decade or so. But one of the leading theories around complexity says that complexity is important. Now, the most complex system is a random system. So that's the sort of thing, okay, if you, if you push some of these general theories through and you start thinking about, well, what, what would it mean for a system, a brain, to be behaving randomly? I'm assuming that that is not the optimal state of functioning and that it's some sort of state in between. So now people are trying to mathematically characterise what is the optimal state of the brain and is a complex system the most, uh, I guess, this is an important thing, a, a complex system might be able to manage more functions, for example, but it doesn't necessarily follow that you would have a more intense experience associated with that. So if we go back to saying consciousness is what it's like to be for a system, and Yaka made the point about pain, in terms of evolution and in terms of an, an infant that's born, you know, the first thing it does is scream. And I often sort of think about as you, I've got three kids and when they were born, there was a lot of screaming going on and you have a toddler, falls over, it hurts its knee. The first thing you do is try to distract the child. And so this idea that actually having more, the capacity to experience more things, so a more rich ex experience repertoire of states could be associated with, in a way, less intense individual experiences. So the idea that, that um, you know, some, some of these sort of theoretical understandings about how the human brain works and we're taking for granted that the human brain in a conscious state, well, that's, the, the I guess, the pinnacle of consciousness or somehow that seems to be the assumption. And so then you extrapolate back and say, well, this smaller system has less complexity, therefore, is it less conscious? And and that I, I really struggle with. I think we need to, to be thinking much more about what it means for a system to be more or less conscious. And I'd, I'd say it's probably the wrong way to, to think about it. Um, one of Jacob's col colleagues and Jacob together with Tim Bain, another philosopher, talked a lot about dimensions of consciousness and different different aspects of consciousness. So it's very hard in an electrical recording of, of brain activity to start picking out, you know, what are these signals actually um, picking up in an otherwise healthy human conscious system? Yeah, well, it's fascinating to wonder whether we should be talking about levels of consciousness mm -hmm. or degrees or, as you said, dimensions. Um, Jakob, where does this leave the idea of um, progressing your consciousness, you know, attaining various levels of consciousness or the idea of enlightenment? That's a great question and it's something that I'm becoming increasingly interested in. Um, partly because that would have something to do with our well-being. Uh, and there's a long tradition in, in, in both philosophy and different faiths and you know, big wisdom traditions and so on for trying to devise methods for achieving different states of consciousness. Uh, whether they are higher in some dimension, that's something that's up for discussion, as, as Olivia mentioned. Um, I think there's, a, there's also a rich tradition for finding like quick fixes to your consciousness through psychedelics or uh, other kinds of, um, you know, you can get an app on your phone that will, uh, you know, allow you to do more mindfulness meditation and then all of a sudden you're better. And some of those quick fixes are maybe a bit too optimistic, but I think there is a very good reason to think that we can work actively with our consciousness in order to acquire better self-awareness, whatever that is, uh, where that self-awareness will allow us to get a better perspective on life. Uh, it's very hard to express these things, though, without being prescriptive, without tying it to a particular normative system, uh, whether that be secular or, or religious or whatever it might be, or ethical in some sense. Um, and I'm interested in, in peeling some of those layers back 
and figuring out what are the computational informational mechanisms that are engaged in the brain when we engage actively in self-awareness. So are there ways in which we can describe in, in a fairly formal mathematical way what it is to look back at our own conscious states and ask ourselves, what are they? How confident are we? Uh, so going into what is now called metacognitive states, uh, but with an active element where we ask ourselves, is this where I want to be? Is this the way I want my attention to be allocated? Am I doing this in a way that is good for my long-term goals, whatever they are, uh, and norms? And some of the meditative um, approaches that, that um, exist in, in all sorts of different contemplative practices are meant to do this for us. But actually doing the, the, the science and the cognitive science and the philosophy around this is something I'm really interested in. And when you talk about approaching it from a mathematical perspective, could you explain a bit more what you mean by that? So I'm very um, enthusiastic about particular mathematical theories of brain function, uh, which basically says that the brain is a, uh, an organ for making sense of the sensory input that we get so that we can... Um, so that we can essentially survive uh, and not be uh, exposed to sensory input, painful sensory input, for instance, that would end us. Uh, and there are mathematical descriptions of this in terms of the way we constantly, we, we build up a big model of the world around us. And on the basis of that model, we try to predict what will the next thing be that comes along. Uh, and then we measure the difference between that prediction and what actually came along, and then we update our model on that basis. And my own view is that consciousness is the upshot of that process. So consciousness is, the, is our best inference about what's out there in the world, what we are, and the states in our body. And the picture of consciousness here is something that's quite detached from the real world. It, it's, consciousness is generated in the organ between our ears, which is working really, really hard just to make sense of all that sensory input that we get. And some of the um, especially visual phenomena that Olivia and I have both worked on really demonstrate this well. So there's something called binocular rivalry, and Olivia is one of the world's experts on this, so <laughs> you can correct me if I, I get this wrong. But in binocular rivalry, you, you show one image, for instance, of a face to one eye, you show another image to the other eye of a house, for instance. And instead of seeing some mishmash of the two things, which is what you predict if consciousness was driven just by the sensory input, the brain goes, no, I'm not happy with this weird face, <laughs> face house <laughs> mash. I'm either seeing a face or a house. So in consciousness, you see either a face for a couple of seconds, then a house, face, house. It shifts around. And that demonstrates that the brain is constantly trying to figure out what is out there, reducing the uncertainty about the sensory input in a way that makes sense of its prior learning and what it thinks is out there. So it's, I think you've characterised it as a kind of hypothesis testing machine. But yeah. it sounds like that's going to be a very different experience for each different individual because the input it gets and the updates that it makes are going to be different depending on everyone's different life. That's true. Uh, and so a lot of it's consistent with a lot of individual differences here where our prior experience determines how we're going to predict the next thing that's going to come along. Of course, we, there's also lots of commonalities between humans in terms of the kinds of ecological niche that we inhabit and the kinds of actions that we can actually engage in given the kinds of bodies that we have. But within that similarity, there's also scope for lots of dissimilarity. And some of that dissimilarity is going to be related to mental illness as well, where we can you know, cascade down the wrong track of these kinds of inferences. Uh, and it can be hard. So statistically, it's hard to make these inferences because it's not just about what will I see next, but how much can I trust what I see next? How much should that weigh in my inference about what the world is like? And those kinds of inferences are very hard to, uh, to engage in. Mm. Well, we've, we've talked briefly about people who are, are having, experiencing various forms of mental illness, um, psychotic states, for example. I wonder if there's been any work done on measuring consciousness in a psychotic state. As... Jakob said, you know, certainly, I mean, it's, it, whatever consciousness is, if, to the extent that the brain's involved, it's inside your head and it's trying to make sense of an external environment. So 
to some extent, you know, there's no way around the fact that this is an internal construction of our environment. And psychosis represents a situation where that's not, not working well. Um, whether, so, so people are absolutely trying to understand what is different about the brain of an individual suffering from psychosis. But in terms of consciousness, this kind of gets back to your question about more or less, better or worse, what's, it's, the assumption is their consciousness is the same, you know, their capacity to be conscious is the same. It's, in this instance, the point of the question is, it's not like coma where consciousness is gone, it's the contents of that experience are, are altered in a way that's extremely debilitating and, you know, horrible for the person, the, the sufferer. Um, so, I, th I think in terms of um, consciousness science, psychosis and mental health has been, there's been less emphasis on, on that and it, it falls more into the clinical sphere of, right, how can we help people, you know, improve the contents of their, of their um, experience, if that makes sense. But certainly altered experiences, that's something I'm extremely interested in, is the diversity of experiences and diversity of experience that, that a human brain is possible of having. Um, but also I think, I think it's, it's often been the case in the past that people would say hypothetically, you know, we may be having different experiences, you know, let's just imagine that type of thing. But the science is very clear, we are having very different experiences. And um, whether it's basic colour perception, even things like we are constantly moving our eyes around the world and we know that we only absorb or only process a fraction of the things that are around us. So it's just a selection side of things. Um, but also across age, we, we are, have very different sorts of experiences as young kids as we do as older adults. And um, so, so this idea that we may be, you know, we don't know what the other person experienced is experiencing. It's true we don't know, but I think we can have some certainty that, that it's very different to our own experience and that that's something we should probably start sort of acknowledging more when, we, when we're thinking about consciousness and, and what it means for other people. So is it hard sometimes uh, in your field to kind of strip away the values associated with consciousness? Because it's not a value-neutral term when ordinary people talk about it, is it? Um, and yet we're having to think about degrees and levels and types and what might be better or worse moments in consciousness. Yeah, I think, I think that that's a really important thing and I, I, I feel like in terms of public conversation and, and people's just starting to think about these things, we're increasingly there, you know, the, we have the capacity now to, to make little brains, these little, um, 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 little brain organoids. What? <laughs> Let's just pause for a minute. Tell me more about the brain organoids. Are they well, like so, little... So, yeah, so they're, um, they're sometimes framed as um, mini brains or such things, but these are uh, little clusters of stem cells and effectively they are, are put in a, in a little jar. So instead of growing cells in a dish, a flat dish, they are in a suspension so they can grow into a three-dimensional structure. There's now more work being done to provide little scaffolds and things. But they are, are made out of human tissue and get at the moment they're around the size of a pea. So, so people aren't assuming, you know, the general sense is that these things are not conscious or that it's anything that it's like to be this system, these systems. But it's an interesting quirk that one of the types of cells that's um, able to replicate quite quickly is the retinal cells so so that you can get these little systems that have some electrical activity or some response to a light stimulus for example is that's happening now um so we i think we need to be having much more sort of search within ourselves as each of us and think well what what does it mean not to be conscious, okay, let's assume we're all conscious. Let's assume our dogs are conscious and our flies are conscious, whatever. What are the, the bits that matter? What would it mean for you to have more or less consciousness? You know, just you, you asked the question for, of Jakob about enlightenment or higher states of consciousness. And I find it's interesting if you start to think about, well, what would it mean to have more consciousness or enheightened or, or 
better in some way. I think most people instantly think about sensory stimulus and so there's more sensation. But then do you th then, well, what is the purpose of consciousness? Well, what is it giving to you? You know, not just in general in, in, in the world, but for you, what, what is it providing you? And if, if it's access to the external world, well, just to have more data, and if some of that is illusory data or hallucinatory data, well, that's not helpful. So is that, is that a, a positive? And if in, in, the, in the meantime, it's extremely distracting and you're actually not able to concentrate on anything, well, you know, is it the capacity to do well in an exam? Is that actually what we, what we want? Is it the capacity to remember or, or be creative and, and these sorts of things? So we, as we start to have systems that have replicate human capacities, we need to be thinking, I think, about each of these capacities in, in more isolation. Yeah. Do I want to connect with the matrix and know yeah. everything at the same time? Do I want <laughs> to be a Buddhist, for example? And Because yeah. some people think of consciousness in its kind of better mm. sense, I'm using quote marks there, as um, that sense of connectedness as being one of a greater whole. That's that's a kind of aspect of Buddhism, isn't it, Jacob, that you, you're kind of a small one or just one part of a giant thing. Yes, and the sense of connection to yourself and to other people and to the world is something that is a big part of those big wisdom traditions and in particular Buddhist philosophy. And again, I'm not an expert on Buddhist philosophy. You should talk to my good colleague, Manama Chera, about this kind of thing. And she's, she's working on the non-self or no-self aspects of consciousness in Buddhist philosophy. So this is the idea that... Um, the subjective part of consciousness, which is the self, is not a real thing. Uh, so no one has any self as such, at least not in a, in a kind of real sense. That's very hard to get your head around, isn't it? It is. It is extremely hard because we define consciousness partly in terms of self-consciousness, our own awareness of ourselves. And so now we're told there's no self. But this is part of a lot of different uh, contemplative practices and wisdom traditions. And you can see how if we have less of a sense of self, we might have more of a connection to other selves or other creatures and the world as such, maybe even future generations. So it depends on how, it, it depends on how literal we want to take that idea of a, a no-self. Uh, but if it can lead to, if, if working with our own consciousness in these kinds of ways can lead to a better connection, that would be a good thing. We talked earlier about um, mental illness, um, and it's true, I think, that a lot of mental illness relates to different sensory experience, but it also relates to different, um, you know, different senses of self and questions about what is my place in this world. And that can come about, you know, in psychotic ways and schizophrenia, but also in post-traumatic stress disorder and um, other kinds of, of illnesses where there's really deep existential questions. And again, understanding consciousness and the role of subjectivity and self there is incredibly important, I think. And psychedelic states too, I imagine. Is, uh, yes. That's, that's something that resonates with what Jakob's saying. Is there work being done there? There's, there's a huge amount of work at the moment being done on psychedelics and it's actually it's been extremely interesting to, to watch from the sidelines as, as the field seems to have exploded recently. There's a lot of work happening in Melbourne at the moment um, getting started up mainly in the clinical space. There's some work happening at Monash um, looking more at what are the changes in healthy brain function um, on, a, on a psychedelic but... Yeah, there's, there's, I think, some really interesting, um, I guess, opportunities from the scientific side of things in terms of psychedelics. I think that they need to be handled carefully and I, I, I'm not involved in... Well, actually, I am involved in some of the clinical research, but I'm, I'm not, a, not a clinician. Um, so I, I hope that that um, work sort of finishes and, and goes to its natural conclusion of finding out if this has therapeutic value. But certainly from the just consciousness side, side of things, one thing that I think is quite interesting from the psychedelic uh, research is the, the specificity of the drug, if that makes sense. So people, I think when 
to the extent they know anything at all about psychedelics, it's they are understood as inducing these crazy, unusual states. And crazy, unusual states are not easy to study scientifically. Um, but in terms of the biology and the chemistry, there really is a huge amount that's understood. You know, we, we understand, it's known what the chemical structure of these compounds are. We know that they, they act through the serotonin system by activating a very small subset of, of receptors in the brain. And that's, that's one thing that I find extremely interesting. So there are a huge number of different um, receptors in the brain that, act, that cause very specific types of um, effects that, that are activated by the natural chemicals that float around our brain most of the, you know, in, in a healthy, happy brain. Um, and the way these drugs, all drugs that impact the mental state work is by mimicking, they just slot in like a, a, a key into a, a lock into certain types of receptors. And it, and it is now clear that there's something very special about the serotonin 2A receptor. And the drugs, there a host of different drugs, but the drugs that activate the serotonin 2A receptor typically cause hallucinations. Um, and we know where those receptors sit. We know which, which neurons, these pyramidal neurons, in the cortex and we know where those neurons feed into. And so it's to me what's interesting about these drugs is it's a hook. They're a hook in, in the same way, not just psychedelics, I think anesthesia, these types of drugs. It's very hard um, to, to understand these effects. It, we talked about individual differences and all of these different things. If someone has had brain damage, you know, a lot of research has been done in brain damage states, but normally that's due to a, a trauma of some type. And so there's a lot that's different about a brain like that. And there's a lot of different people with different psychotic disorders and such things. But with something like an, an as anesthetic or a psychedelic where you have somebody and you can look at the effect before and activate the serotonin 2A receptor for a few hours and then speak, ask them questions in the, in the middle of the, of the period and then and subsequently or do slightly different doses and all these sorts of things. Um, and so to me, that I think that's an extremely interesting hook in. But again, it gets this, this point about well, which aspects of, of consciousness are you impacting? And certainly around the psychedelics, it's very clear that sensory, um, it's very sensory sort of focused. And I, I was giving a talk recently and saying that, that you know, that the sensory experiences may be enhanced, they may be worse, people have horrible experiences sometimes, terrifying experiences, but I, I wouldn't want um, a babysitter of mine to be taking psychedelics, I wouldn't want someone driving heavy machinery um, taking psychedelics, or I probably wouldn't want to sit down and, and do taxes or some sort of ex entry exam to a, a course on a, on a psychedelic or an anaesthetic or, or um, anything like that. So. This, this idea of, well, which bits are we trying to increase in a higher state? What is it? Is it about connectivity to the, the people around you? It does seem that these drugs are associated with, a, I'll say, a, a, a um, dissolution of boundaries. They talk about dissolution of self, so people, it, the sense of self dissolves, but also time and space, the now versus the future seems to become less clear. Um, so I think it's extremely interesting. These, these concepts of time and self and space are fundamental to our subjectivity. You know, Jakob said at the beginning, consciousness is what it's like to be you. If you get into a state where you don't know, you don't have a sense of you anymore, and you don't have a sense of now relative to future and past, it, it sort of shakes up even the basic conception of what it is to be conscious. Yeah, LSD giveth, LSD yeah. taketh away, I think is the take home here. Yeah. I, I think we touched very briefly earlier on about um, the pointy end of all these discussions. If you are approaching end of life in a hospital, if you've had a brain injury, if you're in a coma, and I think we um, work is being done too on people with dementia, and I was wondering also about um, people with intellectual disabilities. These are all uh, states or experiences that are different from the usual run of things. Mm. 
And in a hospital setting where decisions are being made about whether someone is conscious and how conscious they are, that's that's a very, very compelling moment, isn't it? What kind of questions should we be asking in those moments, Olivia? Yeah, I think I, I think this is a really important. I mean, it's a huge question. I think it's a very important question, and I. I from the science side, I hope that as this work, you know, I'm involved in some of this work looking for indexes of consciousness, um, but really being clear about what that means, if that's communicated properly to the, the carers making decisions. Because if it was if it was me on a life support, um, just having some awareness, I mean, it could be awareness of nothing but pain. You know, it could be an unpleasant awareness. So the idea of making an end-of-life decision. I mean, clearly, if, if there's nothing going on and the, the person is effectively um, unconscious and unlikely to ever remain, you know, regain consciousness, then that's possibly, a, a, you know, a, a clearer-cut case. But if, if all we're looking for is trying to find an index of experience, uh, to me, that is really not helpful. We need to, to be not making any real decisions on, well, here's evidence, we should keep these people alive because I see evidence of some subjective experience. Brain activity. Some brain activity that, well, we, there's certainly brain activity that might be associated with unconsciousness. So we all fall asleep at night and there's periods at which we're unconscious and our brain is still functioning. Um, and same with anesthesia. But to try and think more, about, trying to, to get indexes of, of and functional co cognitive capacity, if you can't remember and you can't think straight, and you're just in a confused state all the time with an you know, overwhelming sensory input, that would be a horrible state. I would not want to be kept alive in such a state. Um, so I think we need to be much more nuanced and, and the, in a way, I mean, consciousness is all of everything I'm interested in, but it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all when we're, we're trying to make these more ethical decisions, I think. It's interesting, though, you talk about that idea of being in a confused or um, sensory overload kind of state, but that is part of the experience for some people with autism or some people with dementia. So, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Do you need to have the capacity for those people to have some input into those decision-making processes where possible? before they get to that state? Because yeah. I wouldn't want to be switched off if I, there was activity of potential dreaming. I'd be quite happy like that. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, well, this is actually, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like we, we might end up at a, a point in the future where we have better measures of activity and human capacities and such things that we can tell from, from a brain scan. And like nowadays, people might be having conversations with their loved ones about what would you, you know, should we donate your organs, for example, if you go on. That you've just said, you, you, if you could live it for many years into the future in a in a sort of pleasant dream state, but never being able to report anything, and but happy as you are, well, well, that would be useful to know, you know, for for those people making decisions. And um, I'm not sure I would want to be kept alive in in that state. I was thinking actually on the way here about this idea of replicating, you know, another human, and you gave the example of Dennett and how would we know if there were zombies and such a thing. If I was if I was given the opportunity at the end of life to reproduce myself and knew that I could be functionally exactly the same but I would be unconscious, well, that would not appeal at all. You know, what's the purpose of that? So, you know, the, on the flip side, if you, well, how much consciousness, if you're not functioning, if you're not able to move around and communicate... What, how much consciousness would you want to be kept alive? Would it be these fleeting moments in and out where you're not quite sure what's going on or do you want a rich experience? You know, all of these things. If you have no memory of your past but did have a rich experience, you know, what, what, what are these? Because I think it's those sorts of things we, we will be able to do a better job of detecting things like evidence of memory and recall and these things. Um, so, At yeah. some point. Some yeah. point, some point. So, yay, we've got advanced care plans and we can write all that down for now and then we just wait for the science <laughs> exactly, to catch up. Exactly. Well, Jakob, uh, should consciousness alone confer a certain set of rights or agencies to, to a being, in your view? I think that question is probably much harder than that. I think consciousness has been undervalued and the understanding of consciousness has been undervalued to answer some of those questions. 
and and the cases you 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 mentioned of dementia and intellectual disability and uh, end of life decisions are incredibly important and very difficult and i think that those kind of factuals we ask ourselves would i like this to happen to me at that point in my life if i get dementia or if i have a child with an intellectual disability or if i'm at the end of life and i'm in some kind of disorder of consciousness would i like this that or the other to happen to me we don't know enough about consciousness, even in our own case, to confidently answer that, those questions. Um, and I think that once we, once we are in the situation, we might easily actually, or we, we might easily would want to have different preferences than we think now that we have. And so many of us now have relatives with dementia. I think there's in many cases, not all, but in many cases of dementia, there's a rich consciousness. You know, there's a flow of emotions, and um, but there's also something missing, uh, some kind of temporal horizon for the self that you can anchor those uh, experiences in. And so now, how do we answer your question for this one? You know, does does that confer just the same rights and so on uh, as in the case of what we might call a normal consciousness, when there's no real self there anymore, there's just experience, and that's an, a bit of a stark way of putting it, but it's, that's the kind of picture you get when you interact with at least some people with dementia. Well, and that might be a different to their experience of what's going on. They might be experiencing a self, but it might be a different self to what was going on before. Exactly. So is that any less worthy of, yeah. Exactly. A continued existence. Yeah. And because there has been a hierarchy in the past, hasn't there? I mean, in certain areas of healthcare or just general community life, uh, you know, people with intellectual disability lower down than those without, people with dementia off to one side. Yeah. yeah. It's very easy to adopt a paternalistic approach to uh, anyone who has a difficulty communicating the same way as a healthy, normal adult would, would uh, communicate. Uh, and in particular, how you know you communicate with a clinician who is going to make some of these decisions uh, for you. So there's a lot of paternalism there, or even ethnocentrism, and, you know. and ethnocentrism as well. And it's good that we're beginning to move away from that. There's much better understanding of what it is to give informed consent and all those kinds of things. But there's also a reason that there, that paternalism of some sort. Is needed. There's, you know, we have to take care of each other. We have to make decisions on on behalf of other people, and the way those decisions are made should reflect a better understanding of consciousness. And I think the job of consciousness science, the stuff that Olivia and I are engaged in, is to a large extent to <laughs> point out how difficult this is. It is not so easy. It's not actually, and I think you're right, so easy as we've thought in the past, where well, you can't communicate your desires and what kind of self you have, so therefore I'm going to make all the decisions on your behalf, put you in a home. Um, it's much more difficult than that. Uh, one of the great examples in, in recent research is uh, uh, by one of our collaborators in Canada, Adrian Owen, who put p uh, a person with um, uh, a disorder of consciousness so in, a, in a kind of vegetative state in the scanner, person who's not able to at all to answer any questions when you ask. No behavior at all is coming from asking, are you in pain? Are you happy? Do you want something to eat? Nothing. Put him in the scanner and then you say, imagine walking through your house. Do that for 30 seconds until I say stop. And then you scan their brain while they do that. And lo and behold, for 30 seconds, the area of the brain that is normally associated with navigating through one's house, um, stop. Suggesting that there's something that is working properly in there, but also there's in following of instructions. Right? So they can't answer, but there's something in there. But what is that thing? And that just makes everything so much more complicated because now clinicians can't do the paternalistic thing and just talk and say, well, there was no response when we squeezed them and so on. There, there was a brain scanning response. So, you know, the work we do is just making things even more complicated. I'm glad of that. <laughs> I would like to see more work done on that. That's exciting. Olivia, before we finish up, I guess the last question for me is, are there things that we are never going to be able to know or do you feel like the science is going to get us there one day? Um, 
I think the science is going to get us very far, you know, very, very far. And in terms of finding the correlates and which part of the brain and what type of activity needs to be happening to support conscious, those, those sorts of things. I mean, I, what I don't know is some scientists think that, well, when we fully understand the answer, it will all just become clear and there'll be no sort of intuitive gap less left. I feel less confident that there won't... I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, it's magical, but I do think there are going to be aspects that are just extremely hard to conceptualise and really um, intuit how... OK, so this, it is this neuron doing this exactly thing. Well, well, why does that really, you know, induce and experience the way that it does? I mean, that's, that's what we call the hard problem. And I'm not sure we're going to have a, an answer that's in, intuitive, that everyone says, oh, OK, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, but in terms of providing really good guidance around these clinical types of decision making and, and these sorts of things, I, I think we'll be really be progressing a lot in the next five, ten years. That's very comforting. I'm very glad to hear that that's going to happen. Olivia Carter, Jakob Hoey, thank you so much for your time today. was Hilary Harper in conversation with Olivia Carter and Jacob Howie for Present Sense, The Problem of Consciousness, the first event in the Wheeler Centre's Present Sense series, produced in partnership with Melbourne Monash Consciousness Research. Find podcasts, events and more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.